Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. On the podcast, the Jim Bain Memorial Award is in the house. Saviors, scapegoats, and pointy trophies, plus the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have a discussion with the winner and the runners-up of the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award for 2015 this time. Also in on the conversation is Bill Ledbetter, the contest administrator. We recorded this up in Toronto at the International Space Development Conference, where the award is presented. This is an annual get-together of the space development community, and it is sponsored by the National Space Society which also jointly sponsors the Jim Bain Memorial Award, along with Bain Books. The winner this year is K.B. Rylander for her short story, We Fly. It is featured on the Bain.com front page and is part of our free short story ebook collection for 2015, available at BainEbooks.com. Our runners-up are Jamie Lackey and Robert Dawson, and they were at the conference as well. You can find out lots more about the contest and about how to enter by going to bain.com forward slash bain memorial award dot asp. That's www.bain.com forward slash bain memorial award dot asp. And after that, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. Here's the news. The mass market paperbacks for June are here. These include 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. This is, of course, another entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series. We talked to Eric and Chuck about this book on a previous podcast, by the way. Also out is Spellblind by David B. Coe. 
This is the first entry in a contemporary fantasy mystery series featuring uh, a were-miss detective, Justice Fearson. And if that sounds intriguing to you, you can read Spellblind and then check out His Father's Eyes, which will be out in August, its sequel. We also have a podcast interview with David B. Coe, which Gray Reinhardt conducted in January of this year. Finally, now out in mass market is the 10th entry in the popular and long-running general, or Raj Whitehall series. This is called The Savior, and it's by David Drake, who is the mastermind plotting all of these general books, and it's co-authored by me, Tony Daniel. The Savior is the sequel to The Heretic, which is Dave and I's first book together. Although you can read it as a standalone, it completes the story we began in The Heretic, and provides, I think, a pretty cool finale. The idea is that humans have settled the galaxy, but then there's a big high-tech meltdown, and now it's hundreds of years later, and some planets humans have settled don't even have a memory of the old days, and they've fallen into, uh, into technological ruin. And on our planet, and the Savior and evil AI is doing everything in its power to keep humanity in a kind of um, ancient Egyptian technological stasis by slaughters and pogroms if necessary. But our hero is not going to put up with that, and he has the means to change things, or at least shake them up, and thereby hangs our tale. 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, Spellblind by David B. Coe, and The Savior by yours truly, Tony Daniel and David Drake, are now available in paperback at booksellers everywhere. This time on the podcast, we have the winner, the first runner-up and the second runner-up of the Jim Bain Memorial uh, Short Story Award. Is that what we call it? Yes. Bill? And we also have William Ledbetter, who is the administrator. Hi, guys. Welcome. Hi. Hi. And we're all sitting in a hotel room in Toronto. Uh, this is the International Space Development Conference, and this is where we give the award out every year to our lucky winner. Bill, can you tell us exactly what the criteria of this thing is? Yeah, uh, we started this in 2007, was the first year, and and the idea behind it, the reason we have Bain and the National Space Society as, as co-sponsors is because, one, it's science fiction, but NSS wanted some science fiction that was near-term and rather realistic and, and it's showing the, the heroic and, and uh, inspiring story of man in space, uh, you know, to inspire and, and encourage people to These are go generally, there. they're not stories about how horrible everything turns out to be. Right, yeah, you know, NSS naturally wants to show things in a, in a positive light because we're, we're very supportive of, of humanity expanding out through the solar system and you know, the galaxy, so, so yes... You know, we, uh, if, if you send us a story where everybody dies horribly because we shouldn't be in space to begin with, it probably isn't going to get very far. <laughs> Which is not to say we want happy. No. Um, there could certainly be, there must be conflict. Oh, yeah. And, yes, it would, there would be no stories. And danger and jeopardy and all that sort of thing. So not all these stories perfectly exemplify, I think, the, uh, those criteria. How did it get connected to the National Space Society? Well, uh, That's, this is the American National Space Right, right. I um, uh, my local chapter of, of NSS 
was hosting the International Space Development Conference in Dallas in 2007. And we were trying to come up with novel, you know, interesting things to do to, to generate interest. And of course, being a writer, even then, I, uh, I said, well, I want to, uh, I'd like to have a short story contest, and, and basically with the same parameters, you know, near future, um, man in space type thing. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea, let's do it. And, um, and I had just recently published a story with uh, 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 Jim Bain's Universe, uh, the online magazine that was going at the time. And, and uh, um, so I knew a few people at Bain, and I thought, well, maybe they would be interested in publishing the winner of the, of the contest. And so I, I contacted some people, and it, and it actually went on up to Jim Bain. This was shortly before he died, and he, he really liked the idea, so it took off. It was only supposed to be a one-of you know, one-off, um, but after Jim died, Tony says, you know, this, it worked really well, and it would be a good uh, memorial for him, uh, because he was very supportive of, the, of this kind of fiction, so uh, we made it an annual thing after that. So, uh, the winner this year, the winner this year is K.B. Rylander, um, or is it Rylander? Rylander. Rylander, we better know, um, whose name is Karen, allegedly. Um, that's what the K is. For KB Rylander's uh, story, "We Fly," was the uh, was was our pick for the best story, and we are going to publish that on the Bain.com webpage, for which we pay professional rates, and that will be really cool. But the trophy will be even cooler because it's pointy. It doesn't look like a rocket. <laughs> it looks like. But it's pointy. It doesn't look like a rocket. It looks a lot better. It looks like the crystal that the aliens sent back to, to, with technology for us to to teach us how to be better. Yeah. And make everything and solve all our problems. And it does point up, which is and kind it of points point. up. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent point. Um, and we also have um, Jamie Lackey. Is that your entire uh, writing name? Yes, okay. I write under Jamie Lackey. Jamie Lackey, whose story is A Metal Box Floating Between the Stars, which is a very cool story as well. And we have Robert Dawson, whose story is called uh, Boomerang Zone. Boomerang Zone, yes, I have written here. Boomerang Zone. Um, the way that uh, the criterion for, I mean, how we judge the stories is that Bill picks out his, uh, Bill Ledbetter here picks out his his favorites of the, the, the hundred or dozens and dozens that we, we have submitted. And then um, the main editors and David Drake, uh, who is, has been our celebrity judge and will probably be our ongoing celebrity judge, as, as Tony likes to call him. Um, we all get together and pick out what we like the best uh, and we rate them in a sort of straw ballot sort of way. And uh, after some inter back and forth discussion in the office and via email with David, et cetera, we arrive at a, at a slate. And this year, there was not any question. Everybody put number one, KB Rylander's, Karen Rylander's story, We Fly. Um, it was, there was no horse trading. <laughs> we didn't have to do anything about it except, uh, except say so that's the one. So we were very happy about that. Uh, it's a great story, and we're really happy to be publishing it, Karen. Thank you very much. Yeah, but you, you judges, 
you judges are judging blind. You just get the story. You don't That's right. We have no idea. They, yeah. And this is actually my first sale. Wow. Yeah. First story sale. So tell us about where this story came from, Karen. What's the what's the genesis story of it? Um, well, I think like a lot of writers, I have kind of a list of story ideas that I keep, um, just a Word document. And one of those ideas was a, um, a probe uh, searching for um, life forms or a habitable planet. Um, and the story would be from the point of view of the probe. And um, so it was kind of sitting on my hard drive for a while. And um, when I sat down to see if I could make anything out of the story, um, started brainstorming a little bit and um, tried to think about what, what that experience might be like. And I had actually just written a robot story from the point of view of a robot, so I didn't actually want to do that. And um, so I started thinking about, you know, the concept of a human mind being scanned and put into a, um, into a probe. Uh, and, and also, so if you have a, if you have a probe going um, any great distance, it's going to need to be pretty darn intelligent by itself just because of the problems of communication back with Earth, um, the delay is just going to make it impossible to, for it to not be able to be pretty self-sufficient. So um, if, if you could get to the point where you could put a human mind into a machine, it might make a lot of sense to do that. So, um, yeah, I started playing with that idea and um, started looking at different places I might want them to go. Uh, I settled on Alpha Centauri. And so the, 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 the basic premise of the story is it's a, um, the probe is a, is a woman's mind. She wakes up in, at Alpha Centauri after 50 years of travel, and something is completely wrong with her. There was, she doesn't have any damage to her, but she's malfunctioning, she's panicked, and um, she, she doesn't have any reason why that might be. So that's kind of the, the problem that she needs to solve. But at the same time, she has to try and find a habitable planet while she's there, which kind of started out as an exploration mission, but now that she's woken up, she's kind of got information sent from Earth while she was sleeping that there, there's a generation ship on the way because um, some problems have been happening on Earth. And she's a mind yes. in, a, in the ship. Yes. So that um, she's, she's unable to figure out, she knows something's missing, but she's yes. unable to figure out what it is that's missing. Because if she knew what it was, then she would know what it was. <laughs> right. So, yes. so it's a kind of cool philosophical paradox, as well as a, as well as a survival story of you know we got to figure out what's going on here. Yes. Um, it's all, it's all, I think it's a very lyrical story as well. It's very um, emotionally told, and it's really good in, in that sense. Good character stuff as well that that drives a, also a, a pretty riveting tale. So. So it is uh, your first sale, but it's certainly not the first thing you've written, right? Right. Yes. You've been working at this for a while. Or? Yeah, I think I, I think I kind of was always going to be a writer. I just didn't know it, and uh, so I'd write as a kid and kind of off and on just for fun for years. And I didn't get serious about it until pretty recently. Um, decided to write write a novel. I've had have a couple of them kind of in the works, and then. Um, just pretty recently, I started working on short fiction. Have you submitted to any other contests? Like, um, I've got a couple of honorable mentions from Writers of the Future, so I've submitted there a couple times. All right. Well, now you're in the big leagues. Yes. <laughs> so. 
We also have with us here Jamie Lackey. Um, tell us a little bit about a metal box floating between the stories. There's a similarity between these two stories. Um, it's true. Um, in mine, they're also going to Alpha Centauri, um, but instead of just one probe, it's essentially a space station just en route. They just send the whole station. Um, and they're going to Alpha Centauri as well. But since it takes a long time to get there, um, the crew cycles through cold sleep. And the inspiration for the story is, um, essentially it's a love story um, between pen pals, but they're writing notes to each other across time instead of space, because they're in the same place, but only one of them is ever awake at the same time. Uh, the main character is one of the two engineers on the, on the crew. It's about a 20-person crew, but each one's only awake one at a time. They, uh, they have a staggered wake yeah, up. Yeah, they, they wake up their replacement, make sure the replacement's okay, and then they go to sleep. And the two engineers are at opposite ends of the cycle because, you know, if anything goes wrong, they don't want it to be a whole cycle before they get to their engineer. And each of them has a doctor after them. So that's, you know, you go through the geologists and the biologists and everybody, and then you get to your engineer and then your doctor, and then you repeat. Um, and so she and the other engineer start writing back and forth, um, mostly about the robots, because she is the, the hardware person, so she builds the robot bodies. But he's the software guy, so he's running a test on artificial intelligence, and one of the robots um, responds very quickly and essentially becomes the ship's pet. And uh, most of the most of the tension in my story is more like interpersonal kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of dealing with the loneliness of being the only person awake on once they get there is supposed to be a habitat for 20 people, so it's you know it's echoey and it's empty and they've left everybody that they know behind. So there's a lot a lot of emotional stuff going on for each of them. Yeah, it's epistolatory. Um, it's got a very cool um, back and forth between them as their, as their story develops. And uh, it's a very touching tale as well. So, um, Robert Dawson, your Boomerang Zone is uh, pretty pretty hard SF. Um, it's, a, it's about a accident in space. It's, it's, it's the anti-gravity. <laughs> <But, laughs> well, it did start off, I suppose, when I was watching Gravity and the scene where the astronaut get, falls away, gets tangled in the cables, then falls loose and is gone. And, and I was thinking, you know, it just doesn't happen like that. And How would you know that? Do you have any background in science? Or? Yes, I got a physics degree, but I mean, I first found out about this behavior of things in nearby orbits back when I was a kid and was reading Delaney's Battle 17. And there's a very neat scene in there. Now, Delaney is not normally thought of as hard science fiction, but there's this one scene wh where the heroine has to determine the orbit of the spaceship inside a closed room. And she does this by putting things around the side of the room and watching them as, as the orbit goes on as to see how they drift into the middle of the room. And because of the, this strange language, Babel 17, that she's been learning, which has all sorts of strange stuff built into its structure. She knows from its word for great circle 
that these orbits are going to have to coincide after a quarter orbit. Anyhow, so that kind of stuck with me. And so when I saw it in the movie, I was tearing my hair out. And, and I thought, you know, that would be an interesting idea for a story. Because you know, on the one hand, if things aren't just so, it's not going to be sort of a quarter orbit later. In general, it's a whole orbit before something comes back. The, on the far side, it usually misses. And now, two elliptical orbits that start from the same point are each one going to come back to the same point. The bad news is, usually, one of them is going to take longer to do it than the other. And that means that when the astronaut comes back to where he got blasted off the space station by the malfunctioning thruster, and why didn't he have a safety cord attached? Well, that's just the kind of guy he is. <laughs> when he gets back there, he'll be back at that point, but the chances are the space station won't. Well, in this particular case, he thinks quickly enough to use up the last of his propellant to get himself into the one of the set of orbits, at least approximately, where the orbital time is the same as it was for the space station. That's referred to in the story as the boomerang zone, because anything that goes off there comes back again. But, you know, he's just doing this by the seat of his pants, and he's not going to come back exactly to the same point, grab onto a stanchion and say, ha, <laughs> someone's going to have to go rescue him. Yeah. And that's what a shipmate has to do. And, and they have to figure out what he has done, exactly. because he's not able to tell them exactly. And, and, unfortunately, what they were outside the ship for right at the beginning was fixing the EVA vehicle they should have been using to go and collect them with. And they don't have all the parts yet, so she has to do it using suit thrusters. And 25 kilometers is a long distance to go using something that isn't really intended for that. So... Well, that's all, it's also cool. And this is the kind... We get a lot of... Um, or Bill picks out a lot of um, problem-solving stories because that's the kind of thing that you often get with... with, with and this was just a, a perfect example of a problem-solving story. That, um, and that's one, that's one of the reasons we liked it so much is because we, we see a bunch of those. There was about three or four of them in this batch. Um, and they're good, but um, often they don't have that, uh, that, that depth of character that also goes along with them. And, uh, and we felt that here. As well. So, um, tell us about being. It's been a while since I was uh, a, a beginning writer trying to break in back in the 90s. Um, <laughs> uh, you guys are all uh, pushing, uh, trying to get going with, with selling stories and such, right? Um, Karen, are you planning on um, making a career here if you can do it? Um, yeah, I would like to. I, well, your superhero I mean, I just, YA sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess I just I need to uh, keep writing them and write more novels and more short stories and get them out there. We were talking about um, writing groups that that some of us have at home and and um, what and and Bill, please join in here with it. What um, what are what are the good characteristics and bad characteristics of somebody that wants to 
say enter this contest next year and get a story and, and need some critiquing done, how would how would y'all suggest that they go about getting um, their story in top form? Um, what do you do? We can't. You can't just ask anybody. I mean, you, you need to ask somebody who who you trust, you know, and, and somebody who's going to understand the story and uh, is going to be able to see the weaknesses that you might be blind to. You know, it's like, for example, in in our writers group, we, we have a, a wide variety of, of, of writers, and um, we have some who who just aren't not technically inclined, and they tend to skip the technical parts. And and in a story like Roberts, it's like yeah, you'd miss the whole story if you if you did that. So you need to make sure to give it to the right person. And it has to be somebody you trust, and somebody that that whose whose abilities uh, you know to, to read and, and dissect a story are are good. So. How do you find those people though? I mean, there's so many writing groups out there that are just like mutual like support groups for for not writing. It would seem sometimes even. Um, my writers group is really kind of brutal. We we have we interview people. We we get samples of their writing, and we don't just. It's not an open group. We don't let anybody join. It's like all the all the existing members have to vote on any new members. So if we don't think they're up to snuff, or or even if they're even if they're a beginning writer, if if we see a lot of promise and 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 think that they're willing to, you know. Ramp up a little bit, and about half of our writers have all have all hit professional status as far as you know, like CIFWA qualifications go, and things like that. So we're actually publishing somewhere. Yeah, and absolutely, yeah, actually making money, you know, pro rates on a lot of their stories. So, yeah. What about you guys? Well, the one thing to keep in mind if you don't have a writers group like that available where you live and. In some places, they're pretty scarce. Is that almost anybody can give you good advice about what's wrong with your story, but whether they can tell you how to fix it is another question. And but I mean, advice as to what's wrong is the most important thing. Fixing it is kind of your job, no matter how good the person who's advising you is. But if if something doesn't work for a reader who has never written a thing in their life. That is, after all, what most of the people who read stories are like. That they—that is who you're writing for. You're not—you're not primarily writing for other writers. Yeah, and if I could add to that, if you have somebody like that reading your story, it's—it's it's good to try and encourage them to identify the problem and say which part did not work, instead of skipping straight to how to fix it, because a lot of times the how to fix it part is not what needs to be done. But if you can identify what the problem is, then you can usually figure it out on your own. And you also have to be willing to listen. And you also have to learn when not to listen. Because other writers, readers, they miss things. Like, they, there could be something in your story that, that they just missed, and so they think there's a problem that isn't there. Um, but a lot of the time, if somebody finds a problem, even if you don't think it's there, you should at least check. And especially if you have more than one person. Yes, if you have six people say yeah. that they yeah. don't know what the heck you're talking about, the problem is not only, probably not with them. <laughs> you know, if six people didn't get your point. And one thing, oh sorry, even if someone tells you that there's something wrong, you know, maybe they think it's a factual error or something in the story, you know perfectly well there isn't a factual error. Then I mean that's just what Joe Walton calls the Tiffany problem. They, 
you know this one. They, <clears throat> back in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, Tiffany was actually a genuine Anglo-Norman name. There are records of noble women in Norman England called Tiffany. It's at your short for, well, it's a, a braided version of Theophania. But you try putting that into a historical novel, and the reader's going to throw the book across the room. And, you know, basically, if it doesn't work for the reader, it's your job to make it work for the reader, even if it's factually correct, as you wrote it. Heck yeah. What are we doing here? Are we writing for ourselves? Are we writing for, for who we want to read it? Or we're trying to communicate something to people, and if you don't communicate to them, you are not communicating. It's not their fault. A lot of times, um, readers identify things. Um, they're good readers, and they might not be analytic enough to figure out what it is that's bothering them. They might say the wrong thing. But if something's bothering somebody, there's probably something damn well that needs, needs working on a story. Uh, unless they're an idiot. Just don't get those people in your And Actually, if I could jump in and, and say what's really helped for me um, is a couple of online writing critique resources are is Critters and um, Science Fiction Writers Workshop. Um, which I've, I've never used Critters, but I've heard a lot of good things about it, but I've used the Science Fiction. I think it's called Online Writers Workshop, and uh, it's very good. I use Critters. It's good. I used to use Critters before I got my local face-to-face -face group, so, you know, if you don't have any other options. like a, a, a kind of um, match.com for writers? <laughs> yeah, people just trade critiques, but the thing is, if, you, if you're very active in it, you can get up to 20 or 30 critiques, and it's like, you know, like 20, if you get 30 of them, like 25 of them might not be very useful, but if you have five good critiques that are all, you know, help you polish your story, then it's worth the effort. Another really good... are telling you what a random reader is going to react like. Right. And that, and that's, that is really valuable. I mean, if, if you're only getting your critique from writers, there are going to be things that a room full of writers will miss that one person who is basically more of a reader than a writer will nail for you. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons Critters is useful. The other reason Critters is useful is because it... It makes you keep up your total of critiquing other people's work, and you can learn a lot from that too. Yeah. One of the another great resource, and I think Bill has taken advantage of the Baines Bar um, critique. Uh, I mean, you can submit your stuff there, and people will will read it and, and give you their thoughts on it. A lot of writers have um, some Bain writers have have started that. Like Ringo, for instance, John yeah. Ringo um, came out of out of that critique. Uh, and my first pr my first pro sale came through that critique group. You know, I mean, you know that that on online group. So yeah. And there's other uh, I mean there's there's all kind of, the 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 lesson is is that even though you're incredibly shy and socially inept perhaps or not, but a lot of writers are introverts. Um, you got to figure out how to how to get out enough so that at least um, you actually have to show your stuff to somebody, you know, and actually have to not um, cringe into a corner when somebody says they don't get something, I would say, right? So, yeah, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin. You can't, you can't take offense when people are trying to help you. And you can develop it by just, you know, if, if something happens enough in a, in a writing group, then you become inured to 
the pain it causes your soul. And yeah. you're like, and you can start thinking about whether or not what they say makes sense or not. And getting so. used to critiques is a good first step for getting used to negative reviews when you know you're ridiculously famous. Yeah. So, Be ready for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyone you're writing who, who actually critiques you by saying you're an idiot, then you're in the wrong group. If they say you haven't written this story as well as you should have, then that's not attacking you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot it's of writers that, that it came up without being in writer's group, but I don't think anybody has not had, had a group of readers that read their stuff and give them some feedback of first readers. Um, I say there, there needs, there's two main things you have to be willing to do. One is you have to be able to discount and, and not use the feedback that you get. Because I've, I've seen people who, who try to incorporate every bit of criticism they get, and it's, it's impossible because a lot of times you have critiquers giving you contradictory advice. And, and on the other end, you have to be willing to totally gut a story in order to save the good kernel of... of you know, the, of the good part of the story. Yeah, you got to figure out what it is you were trying to do and do it better. You don't want to change it to what they want you to do. But if you didn't know what you were trying to do going in, if your subconscious was not entirely, if your conscious is not clear on what your subconscious was telling you, <laughs> a lot of times yeah. things are, are quite muddled. Um, and, you know, and rewriting and revision is, is essential as well as finishing something, um, not showing people your first four paragraphs and, and seeing what they think, <laughs> especially your mom. <laughs> so. Um, so where are you guys from? Why do you want to write science fiction of all things? I have never wanted to do anything else. Uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, it's always what I wanted to do, much to my, my parents' joy when it was time for me to pick a college major. Um, but they've always been very supportive, just uh, a little more practical than me. But I don't know why I started, but I really like just genre fiction in general because it's about being able to entertain people. Like, I, I write to entertain. I don't, like, if one of my stories gives someone some sort of miraculous life growth, that's great. But I, I write so that people can be entertained. Because life can be hard, and I want my fiction to be fun. Hallelujah. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good Bane philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. And I'm from Pittsburgh. And you're from Pittsburgh. Which is awesome. Yeah. Everyone should come to Pittsburgh, it's amazing. <laughs> And read Win Spencer's uh, uh, Tinker Books, which are set in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's Pittsburgh of the of the of the magical realms. Um, and Robert, you're a scientist. You're a teacher. You're a mathematician, right? That's, yes, that's right. Um, yeah, but you're not satisfied with that. You want to conquer English as the the English short story as well. Is that well? I mean, it's for me writing some spare time activity. Um, Certainly not planning to give up my day job, and you know I get a great deal out of that as well. But you know, writing is you know, certainly just that extra something in my life, and you know I love it. 
Cool. And Karen. How did I get into writing? No, what do you want to, I mean, uh, I, why are you not a chess champion as you started <laughs> out to be? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I did compete in chess tournaments um, through high school and then um, into college. And then I went on a scholarship. Yeah, I did. A I, chess scholarship. I won a chess scholarship at a chess tournament and I uh, went to UT Dallas because of it. And uh, I actually grew up in Utah and um, went to college in Dallas. And um, I, actually, my mother um, was really involved in science fiction when I was a kid and um, was a writer. And um, I mean, I, I went to my first science fiction convention when I was seven years old. And wow. so I was kind of just raised. I was raised with all you wonderful people, <laughs> and uh, it's it's. I mean, I I mean, some of my earliest memories are watching Star Trek with her, and um, she read me probably the thing that really hooked me to. I mean, I, I think I was kind of raised to just love science fiction and fantasy, but the thing that really hooked me was when I was about nine or ten years old. She read me um, Lord of the Rings. Started with Fellowship of the Ring. Me and my sister. And uh, I was reading every night, and it was very fun and all that. But then she gets to the Mines of Moria, and it ends like a chapter or something, I don't really remember, with like the pitter-patter of feet of Gollum behind them. And then she quits reading for the night. And so that was the end of her reading to me, because I stole it and read with a flashlight. And, uh, and I was hooked with reading all that great stuff after that. We could do that to your kids. That's the plan. That's my evil plot. Don't tell them. <laughs> so, Bill, ongoing plans for the... Uh, we're going to have an ebook anthology, um, by God. Yeah, the, the, uh, the plan is to have a 10-year um, anniversary anthology, which will have all of the first, second, and third place stories um, for the first 10 years. So that will be 30 stories. Um, a lot of great... Uh, writers and a lot of great stories will be included in there. So if you haven't managed to keep up with the stories that uh, we've been publishing for the for this contest now, you know, then will be your opportunity. So uh, that's coming up. Uh, should be, uh, I think next year will be the 10th year. By the way, I would, uh, it, you can find all the old stories. They're still out there. They're online for one thing, but they're also collected in an ebook form. In our free not our free fiction, our free short story anthologies for like we have the 2014 free short story anthology uh, at baneebooks.com. So all of the stories are, I believe, collected or at least the last few years for sure. Um, so you can find some of these great stories that have won over the years. Um, and when is this? When is the contest open back up? And what's the uh, it opens up in October, and it, it's it's a it's a rather large window. It lasts for about three four months. Tell us the the real criteria, so that if somebody out there hears that, that they could write that kind of story. Well, we're looking for uh, near future, which you know, fifty sixty years. It's it's not a hard fast line, uh, but we're we're not looking for magic technologies. Really, we're looking for for things that are plausible, you know, like uh, one of the things that is would be a really hard sell is, is you know, warp drives and 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 we don't want galactic in, uh, empires. We don't really want um, we don't really want alien invasions that kind of thing. Uh, we want to show 
the near future of, of humans in mostly in our solar system or or at least like in the case of, of these two stories two of these stories uh, our first attempt at, at getting to another star uh, something you know and, and because we think you know at Bain and at, at NSS we think that there's a lot of adventure and a lot of amazing things that await us out there um, and you know anybody who sees that as a limiting factor, just isn't really trying very hard. Yeah. So, and if you win, you get to uh, come to the uh, International Space Development Conference and uh, wherever it may be held, and get a pointy trophy, and we'll publish you, and we'll That's pay right. you for the pay you for the honor of publishing your story. And where is it next year? Puerto Rico. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Tony's probably going to. Get that one. Yeah, she told me she, she had dips on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, William Ledbetter, Robert Dawson, Jamie Lackey, and Jim Bay Memorial Short Story Award winner for, are we calling it 2015 or 20, I guess so, 2015, yeah. KB Rylander, Karen Rylander. Thank you so much, guys, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And now, here is the conclusion of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, as read by Bronson Pinchot. We've had some great listening in this book over the past few months, and we want to thank Audible.com for allowing us to serialize it. You can get the complete audiobook at Audible.com, and if you're not a member, you can get the audiobook free, or one of more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with our final segment of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. Epilogue now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Winston Churchill, longtime critic of the Imperium, upon hearing of Chairman Okubo Tokugawa's demise, 1932. New York City, New York, three months later. He had to admit this really was a pretty spectacular office. From the top of the Chrysler Building, he could see the dirigibles docking at the Empire State Building, and every inch of the place was pure, polished opulence. I've got to hand it to the old coot. He certainly knew how to live. Yes, Mr. Stuyvesant, the new UBF Vice President of Finance said as he flopped onto the overstuffed leather couch. 
You know why your grandfather used to say that he liked this building the best? Francis Cornelius Stuyvesant II turned from the glass wall, picked up the bottle of fine wine from his marble desk, and walked over. No, why is that, Mr. Chandler? The accountant laughed as he held out the empty glass. He said it was because it was pointy. Francis poured him another refill. Can you believe that? He sat on the couch, uncomfortable in his new tuxedo. He'd inherited the most powerful company in the world. He'd gone toe-to-toe with the most dangerous wizard in history. He'd survived direct hits from two Tesla superweapons. He was a telekinetic and also happened to be a member of a magical secret society. I can believe just about anything. Chandler inhaled the drink in one gulp and gave a contented sigh. Well, now that we've gotten the legal aspects taken care of and all the papers are signed, UBF is all yours, Francis. The accountant usually only called him by his first name after he'd had a few too many. What are you going to do now? Francis swirled the wine around but didn't really feel like drinking. I don't know. I've got so much responsibility. I can run this company the way I always thought it should have been run. The accountant shook his head. I meant about the other thing. The five UBF men who'd survived the Tokugawa had all been paid buckets of money and sworn to secrecy. Well, in the papers I'm a famous billionaire playboy. I suppose it isn't really practical for the head of UBF to go out and battle evil. Hmm. Maybe I could wear a disguise when I fulfill my grim noir duties. Like a mask or something. That is perhaps the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Chandler laughed. You're a hoot. Francis grinned sheepishly. Yeah, that is pretty ridiculous. So what are your plans now that everything is under control? Me? <laughs> I'm a bookkeeper who drinks too much, is always in a foul mood, and hates coming to work. But since you're paying me lots of money because of my refreshing honesty, I'm not going anywhere. He stood and walked to the door, but paused on his way out. Though I have given some thought to trying my hand at writing. Francis chuckled. Good night, Ray. The accountant gave a little salute with two fingers and closed the door behind him. It was a rare man you could trust with either a Thompson or a general ledger. Francis stayed on the couch, enjoying being alone in the quiet lights of the city. Eh, it's been a long day, he muttered to himself. No kidding, Faye said as she appeared directly in front of him. Gah! He spilled the wine all over his pants. Don't do that. Faye clucked disapprovingly and put her hands on her hips. It ain't my fault you don't have a head map. Sheesh, look at that. You're going to be all stained. It was then that he realized Faye was wearing an honest-to-goodness evening dress. And her hair was done up. And she was wearing jewelry. And lipstick? How scandalous. I, I, he was speechless. Well, yeah, I do clean up pretty good, huh? Faye smiled. Jane helped me. She twirled for him. Not bad for a heck, huh? Not bad at all, he answered truthfully. She beamed at the compliment. Like I was saying, though, super long day. Rumor is that there's iron guards up to something in Alabama. 
and Lance is going to go check it out. But then some active kids got rounded up by a mob for nothing but being active since folks are still all riled up at us. And they're having a sham trial, so Heinrich's going down there to help them. And Jane and Dan's wedding is coming up next week, and they said you have to come, don't care how busy you are. And Mr. Browning says hello from France. And his telegram said that he'd be honored to be in charge of the American Knights. But the stupid elder still won't give up Mr. Rawls. And still nobody knows where Mr. Sullivan went off to. But he said it was really important, so it must be. And that reminds me, Mr. Southunder called and said thanks for the new fancy blimp. And Francis put his finger on her lips. Nothing stopped Faye when her head got to spinning. We're going to be late for the play. I can fix that real quick. He was hesitant. After she'd traveled an entire dirigible, Faye had slept for a week straight. Her power had been severely overtaxed, nearly burned out, and she was still recovering. It turned out that even Faye had limits. Can't we take the elevator? Faye's gray eyes twinkled. The traveler may only have worked her way back up to a small part of the magic she tapped during the battle, but nothing could keep Faye down for long. She took his hand. Elevators are for chomps. This has been an Audible Frontiers production. Executive Producer, Steve Feldberg. Producer, Mike Charzik. Music by Michael Whalen. Copyright 2011 by Larry Correa. Production Copyright 2011 by Audible Inc. And that was our final segment of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 blast off of huzzahs and way to goes and some hey, I want to read that to our Bain Memorial Short Story Award winner. K.B. Rylander, and runners-up Jamie Lackey and Robert Dawson, as well as Gratitudinous Maximus Rex to William Ledbetter, the JVM Contest Administrator. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 